Welcome to Average Joe Meets the UK's Everyday Entrepreneurs, where we talk to all kinds of business owners across the country about how they got started and what it's really like to run their business, so that we can learn and be inspired to start something of our own. This week is the story of Carousel Lights, a company that designs and supplies lighting and illuminated signage to the world's biggest brands, from famous musicians and bands to well-known hotels, bars, shops, restaurants, event spaces, you name it. The variety of lights and creativity of designs need to be seen, so if you have a moment, head to carousellights.com and have a look at their gallery for a real flavour of what they do. Behind Carousel Lights is Ben Reynolds and his sister Rebecca, who have won numerous industry awards for their business, including national winners of the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community for Creative Industry and Family Business. And Carousel Lights was publicly recognised at one of the Downing Street daily briefings for its COVID contribution efforts. This interview is with Ben, who prior to starting Carousel Lights had a completely different work life that started with the BA Graduate Scheme and ended in marketing at the BBC. So how do you go from there to setting up an award-winning lighting company? That all started on Ben's bus journey home from work, the day the Beeb announced it was moving its operations from London and up to Salford. Let's find out what happened. Hello, Ben. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, first of all, thank you so much to your lovely wife and lovely lady in general for volunteering you to be interviewed. I hope you had some choice in that. Yeah, I did. My first Average Joe interview, actually, was with James Williamson, who runs Art with Glass, which is a stained glass workshop. And he pointed out his product was very Instagrammable, as opposed to, say, selling nuts and bolts and plumbing parts. And I, it's, that is certainly true for your business too. If you head to carousel underscore lights, listeners, there's a beautiful array of pictures. And I don't know what it is about neon lights, but they really evoke this kind of party holiday vibe. Um, so I thought I'd start by asking you to reminisce a little bit about some of your most exciting, ambitious, beautiful, complex jobs to date, if you can pick a couple out of all the ones you've done. <laughs> yeah, goodness. Well, first of all, Joe, thanks so much for asking me on. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate it, and it's really exciting. Yeah, goodness. So some of the projects, so what we do is we um, we produce sort of illuminated um, signage and lighting for a, a huge range of customers. So we actually started off doing mostly b2c so for people sort of oh, okay. homes like high-end art pieces then quite quickly moved into um b2b but goodness some of the most exciting projects i remember quite early on in the business we were probably three or four years old and we got a phone call from a tour manager yeah. and he said we're bit with there's this new sort of singer you may have heard her name but we're basically trying to build her name as a brand she's going on a on a big tour and we want sort of animated neon flashing lights behind her on stage. And we said, sure, send us through the designs. And it was the designs for Dua Lipa. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, and it was when she was sort of, she was already known in the sort of music industry, but she was sort of becoming a sort of a world-famous sort of singing celebrity. Um, so we did her big animated DMX flashing through the lighting desk, sort of fake neon signs. That was a really exciting project to work on at the start. We've done neons for some of the world's most famous artists that you'll sort of, when you'll see sort of an artist piece of neon in a gallery or in a home, like it's not really, it's not normally them that's actually making the neon glass. So we do yeah. that. So they're always exciting projects. Some of the homes I've been into to see them. Oh, right. Um, so, so you actually go into the home and sort of consult with them and develop We can product. do. We yeah. can do. Yeah, it depends on who the... Um, First of all, who the artist is. So they may ha already have an idea, um, and in which case we're just bringing their vision of the sort of neon art to life, and they'll probably then put it up sort of in their own gallery, or it's already a commission they've got. Whereas sometimes we'll go into a home, often celebrity homes, and they'll say, I want something for this space, sort of like, what do you think? Um, and that's really exciting. We don't do as much of that as we used to, because it's sort of, it's to be totally frank, it takes a lot of yeah. time. Um, but it's a nice mix we've got now. So we still do some of that, but then obviously a lot more of the big commercial sort of work. West Ham Football Club we've done, the O2, yeah. loads of exciting projects. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, they all sound 
really exciting. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's go for the, from the beginning then. So I know, I think you mentioned you, you did some work, uh, or how, where did you start off then, uh, your journey for Carousel Lights? Um, maybe you can talk about life before them and how you got here. Yeah, well, it's sort of, it's a bit, it's a journey that I would never have envisaged happening, to be totally honest, <laughs> um, which I guess is how life works. As you get older, you sort of realise that and appreciate it yeah. and value it probably yeah. more than I yeah. would have when I was younger. Um, but I graduated from the University of Birmingham back in 1999 mm-hmm. with a master's degree in mechanical engineering. But I never really thought that I'd, on my course in engineering, there were, there were a clear group of people who had gone into it because they were on the path to become an engineer. That absolutely wasn't me. I was quite technical, sort of I enjoyed, a mi- I always saw myself as quite creative and quite numerate. Um, I always enjoyed both. So I thought engineering is just a natural degree for me, but it was never sort of the job I was going to go into. I then, I remember a really pivotal moment in my, sort of ver- really at the start of my career. So I graduated, um, I got a first, which I was over the moon with. And then I started applying for lots of different jobs because to be totally frank, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I remember one day I had three offer letters on sort of my rented flat in Maida Vale, where I used to live in London. One was to be a patent attorney. So basically a lawyer, but specialising in trademarks, intellectual property, that sort of thing. One was to be a biomedical engineer. So it was sort of, you'd almost become a hospital consultant. You specialised in sort of prosthetic limbs and that sort of thing. And one was to join the British Airways graduate scheme, which is just a general management scheme. And I remember sitting at my desk with these three sort of offer letters in front of me going, this is a really, this is a key day in my life. <laughs> Deciding what path yeah. I'm going on. And I didn't want to specialise in law. As I said earlier, I didn't really see myself as being an engineer, even in the medical sort of um, sector. So I went with the BA grad scheme. So I accepted that offer, joined the BA graduate scheme in 2000, which was a general management programme. My first placement, which I loved, and I actually loved it. So I was there nine years in the end, made close friends who I still see now. Um, My first placement was in in the engineering department, specialising on gas turbines, which was what my master's thesis was on. But then quite quickly, I moved into marketing and spent all of my sort of corporate life, and it's largely what I do now, um, on marketing. So I became head of partnership uh, marketing at British Airways. Then I left, became head of marketing for eBookers, the online travel agent that's now part of Expedia. Then I moved to the BBC, and this is where the Carousel Lights sort of bit came in. So I moved to the BBC. So I was living in West London at the time. Um, got a job as head of marketing for BBC Studios, because that was based at Television Centre, um on wood lane and out of interest when you're when you're moving jobs were you always kind of driving to move those jobs then was it kind of or was it happenstance again or like because even Um, just moving jobs is quite you know quite a you know it it is it is and that was that was actually a key point so i'd been at ba nine years and i thought if it felt like it was getting to a stage where i either I, i became quite ba so sort of I'm a BA person, I know BA is an institution, I know its ways, I know its means. So I just sort of almost settle in there and get promoted, hopefully, et cetera, et cetera. Or I make a switch and I, I'm not sort of a BA person. And I'm actually sort of more of a generalist in terms of industries, um, sectors, skills, that sort of thing. So I decided to, I specifically decided to leave. Um, I actually spent three months out sort of just having a bit of traveling, then came back but it was it was it was always those those parts of my career have always been very deliberate. So yeah. that, and that was the reason for me leaving BA. Um, the reason for me leaving the BBC was very different. So this is how Carousel Light started. So I was really enjoying the BBC. I'd been there, I think, a couple of years, and then the BBC made the announcement they were closing Television Centre, which is very close to where I lived, and move and it was partly sort of regionalization so they're moving a lot of the work some of the work down sort of to the west country bristol but actually most of it up to salford in manchester so my job would either have moved to salford or perhaps else so i also used to look after the extender set at elstree so maybe elstree studios as well but either way it, the commute wouldn't have worked for me so i'd have had to move house and i was just loving my life in london that i thought actually i don't want to do that so that was forced on me in terms of if i don't want to do that what do I do? Mm-hmm. So this was 10 years or so ago. 
And that evening, so I got the bus home from um, Television Centre and I walked where we used to live in Chiswick. We used to be one of a sort of a travelling fair was in the park. And I walked through it and saw all the lights and like the smells and that sort of thing. And then I got home and I was doing an extension. I thought, you know what I'd love? I'd love an old fairground light off a waltzer ride or something like that in my garden. Um, they're obviously outdoor lights because they go outside on the fairs. And I just couldn't find one. I Googled it and Googled it and just couldn't find one. Um, so ended up making one. I ended up making one sort of inspired by the Waltzer fairground ride. So that was that ride was invented in the Art Deco era by a chap called Charles Thurston. So I created this big heart with Art Deco wings. I painted the outside of the heart, the exact red that Charles used on the first ever Waltzer ride in 1933. Anyway, and it, it looks incredible. And I did it with, at this stage, then my sister was involved. So we, we set up the, we came up with the idea together. Let's do it. Let's give it a go. Let's do one of these and then try and sell a few. And we managed to, managed to sell a few locally in Chiswick. But then the pivotal moment for us in terms of transitioning from um, sort of the co- corporate career. So this was almost, do I do this? Is it just a hobby while I'm finding sort of my next job? I'd love to do it as a business, but are there any legs in it as a business? Sort of, but actually, what we were doing with hindsight was testing the market, um, which we know now to do deliberately when we come up with a product. But we weren't really deliberately doing it then. And we made one for local delicatessen in Chiswick. We made a few locally for shops and when people heard what we were doing. But then the key time for us came. There was local publication. You get these pre- free publications sort of everywhere, don't you? Which are largely funded by estate agent ads, but they're sort of they're quite premium. So there was one called Absolutely Chiswick, where we lived, and they wrote a little article about me and my sister sort of making these fairground lights and selling them. And one was put through the door of Sophie Ellis Baxter, the singer, obviously. Oh. And then the phone rang, and it was Sophie. So. And she said, I've got a tattoo on my arm by a famous tattoo artist, French tattoo artist called Tintin. Um, and basically it's a heart through the middle of it. It says family. And then there's sort of a ribbon going through it. And she said, I'd love it if you could bring that tattoo to life as a neon and fairground light sort of um, light for my kitchen. So we did. <laughs> yeah, we did that. It looks incredible. And then back then, I don't think she had any children or maybe she had one. But since then, this is sort of in the last eight, nine years, maybe she had one or two children. She's since had either been pregnant with or given birth to um, five boys. And the reason I say that is each time she was either pregnant or actually had given birth to a baby, she took a selfie of herself with the light we did behind her because it says family and posted it on Instagram and tagged us. And that was sort of the start of the business. Oh, my God, that is a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's funny how things work out. So some of it's engineered, some of it's chance, some of it's luck. You know, the whole, all the normal things that go into sort of, you know, someone setting up a business. And um, just actually going back to how you made the Neon Lights, did you Google it, YouTube it? Like, did you use your engineering skills? It was actually a bit of all of that. So, So to actually actually do the glass itself probably takes uh, to learn how to do it probably takes 20 years or so so it's sort of an old glass bending skill and it's actually something we push quite heavily now because it's on the list of there's an organization called heritage crafts which is chaired by jay blades from the tv's repair shop and basically what their organization is doing is trying to protect old heritage british crafts so it could be sort of basket weaving blah de blah but one of those is neon real neon sign making so real glass um and that's on the endangered list at the moment so we're doing a lot to try and promote sort of the making of real neon glass so basically back to your question it takes probably 20 years to become really good and proficient at it so we knew from day dot that okay we need we need to a glass bender to help us with that so it, that and actually that took quite a long time to find one in terms of probably a few months you know you don't just sort of go go online and go right where's a neon glass band and they need to trust you they need to know they're quite busy anyway so why would they suddenly start working with you but yeah we did we did find them um I can't remember how whether it was online or a recommendation or probably through the fairground world actually so we started buying fairground lights and they use a lot of neons maybe it was a recommendation through them I can't remember to be honest that back then 
And um, were you still at the BBC at this time or were you out of work looking for your next role and then this just built momentum and the Sophie Ellis I was, the link was, was at that time? So when I knew that I was leaving, um, so basically the, the announcement had been made that Champion Centre was closing, I'd obviously decided that I wasn't going to relocate to um, Salford. So... I, so then we so then I started to talk to my sister about it. So my sister's background is events. Ah. Um, and she had just left a job at the time. Goodness, this is sort of 12, 10, 11 years ago now. So I'm thinking back. But she had just left work at the time. We were thinking about, you know, I started doing this light. Then we started doing it together. So I was, from what I remember, I was in work when we had the idea. I, I imagine I wasn't at the BBC when sort of that key pivotal moment came of Sophie Ellis Baxter ringing us up. That's roughly how the sort of timelines fell. And and your sister, did she go in with you? And, and again, was that sort of happenstance or was it kind of, uh, right, we're going... That was... Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah. It, so my our dad um, had his own family business, which I imagine is probably the seed that was in the back of both of our minds sort of as we grew up you sort of look to your parents don't you if you get a family of doctors the kids often think well I'll go into the medical profession and I think that happens across a lot of industries and certainly sort of owning your own these days we call it enterprise we call it entrepreneurship back then my dad he's retired now but he would have called it sort of a business owner and we're all the same thing we all own businesses it's sort of just got a new label which is probably a bit sexier yeah but he did exactly (laughs) the same thing like he owned his own business um he was a meat whole, a meat wholesaler, so he was sort of import from the continent, sell meat here. Um, but actually, I think that was in both my, mine and my sister's head all along. So then, when sort of it got to the time, was deciding to set up Carousel Lights. I think it felt like, even though it was very scary, obviously, particularly because we'd both been in the security of the corporate world, it almost felt like a natural progression and probably something that was going to happen anyway. Yeah, and I think that's interesting that. That your your background just said why not why not why not do this whereas I think you know a lot of other people their background would be quite different so they just wouldn't be able to take that leap as easily it's very interesting yeah that your sort of upbringing and how that impacts I agree you. I would I would say what is quite important on that point for me personally is that I felt that my safe I, I'm I'm quite a sort of mixed person in terms of I'm quite, uh, I'm quite happy with risk because I don't think you could do this if you're not. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I quite like a safety blanket as well. So probably in terms of how, if you if you took the population in terms of their attitude to risk, I'm probably quite high risk. Yeah. If you took, um, if you cut that population down into people who own their own business and entrepreneurs, I'm probably quite low risk. And and the reason, so we, we, we've never had funding, we've never wanted funding, we've never wanted to sort of wake up in the middle of the night thinking, God, shareholders are going to be knocking on the door mm-hmm. tomorrow saying, where's my return? Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so yeah, it is. So for me, what's always been important is this, as a business owner, is the safety net of my corporate background. So what I wouldn't have done, I, would, I didn't do it then, I wouldn't do it again with hindsight, is I wouldn't leave university and set or school or whatever it is and set up my own business. Mm-hmm. I wanted sort of 10, 15 years of sort of big blue chip training, expertise, discipline, partly to sort of make me better at, in business, but actually partly that if something went wrong in terms of setting it up, I've got that, I've got that sort of those really strong foundations to fall back on. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, another question is, um, what were sort of the key investments you had to make right at the beginning? And how did you product. finance them? Product. Yeah, so absolutely product. So we thought that if we're going to spend money on anything, it needs to be it needs to be something that people can see. Um, so obviously, for that being in the product industry, it, 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 we're not in the service industry. It was product. The showcase of that product was obviously our website initially. So the, the products and the websites we had come up with sort of samples, different options, different. Then we'd get photographers to go. So as we started to grow and so, so say Sophie's, Sophie Ellis-Bexter's light, so we'd go and take photos of, of that and if necessary pay a photographer, like a student, maybe like right. a couple of hundred quid to go and get photos of it. Um, so we could put that on the website, then put it in marketing collateral, 
so products what we what we didn't want was to be spending because because we were bootstrapping like we didn't have investment yeah so we didn't want to be spending money on like professional services and coming up with sort of great tech that we could sell stuff through online it was it was absolutely for us about creating products photographing them showcasing them like and then repeat repeat yeah. repeat um but but we were i guess we were, in terms of how we did fun things we were quite do you know what i say lucky maybe it's not luck maybe sort of we thought it through so i at the, at the time i did it as i say i was sort of 10 10 to 15 years into a corporate career yeah and i didn't have huge financial responsibilities so i was single oh, do you know what? i think i met my now wife kate obviously as you know probably literally about a year after I started it but basically I was I was um so 12 years ago I was single I didn't have children obviously I had a mortgage but sort of in the grand scheme of things compared with that it was relatively low in terms of interest rates yeah um so basically it enabled me to save enough and my sister was in a, a very very similar position so yeah. between us it, it had enabled us to save enough to get us through Let's, um, it was probably roughly a year. Of, yeah. So obviously the biggest cost was the lack of income. So the lack of income and having sort of pay the mortgage and pay my sort of day-to-day living was far more expensive than how much we were spending on sort of products and samples type thing. So I think often people go into business. So I do some lecturing at Birmingham University, or I say lecturing, sort of mentoring. So yeah. occasionally I go to Birmingham University to sort of um, do some marketing lectures there to students in the enterprise center the entrepreneur entrepreneurship center which is amazing by the way it's called elevate and it's in a building called the exchange and it's they're doing incredible things um but i often go to, go go to them and i'll i'll say when you're thinking of funding don't think about don't just focus on what you're going to need to spend on your business think about what you're not going to be earning to focus on your business because that could be your bigger your bigger cost yeah absolutely and was there a moment through that year where you thought, oh gosh, I've only got six months left and I'm gonna otherwise I'm gonna have to get another job or what what was your sort of mindset during that that? Do you know, I don't period? think that ever ends. I, I, oh, I does think, it not? <laughs> no, I don't think it does. Like I think that is just the mindset of a like it, it could all so it nearly did all end at the start of I mean, I'm sure your previous guests have spoken about COVID. Yeah. But that it that that you never and that's that sort of taught we sort of thought it anyway but that has taught us that you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow um and you don't know what's going to check for us covid was i mean it obviously started off being like a total disaster so literally we were having a great year yeah that code everyone sort of could see it was happening the phone literally stopped ringing huge clients were working with a big um, a company called SBG, Shoreditch Bar Groups. They basically own most of the bars in Shoreditch, like Cargo, Hoxton Pony. They're all full of me on. They're great clients. Um, and we were doing a big job for the Hoxton Pony, basically filling it with me on, which we've ended up doing. But the phone just, from all our clients, the phone just stopped ringing, yeah. literally. And we're like, okay, that's it, you know. And then, but actually what was interesting for us there in terms of um, your question, whether you think it's all going to end tomorrow, we were all back then. We thought, like, what, what do we do? So we went quite quickly into, like, now you see them everywhere, but the acrylic screens that you used to get at the pharmacy and bloody everywhere, um, the acrylic protection screens, you know, at the sort of cashier's Oh, desk. right. Did you? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, we use quite a lot of acrylic to protect lights. So say the Hoxton Pony, that I just gave the example of, obviously, a bar, a bar stroke nightclub in East London. Yeah. So a lot of the neon in there is real neon. So they like real glass neon as opposed to the LED neon that we also do. Um, but it's obviously fragile and some of it's within reach of customers because they're selfie lights. So basically we protect neon in high traffic areas with acrylic, like clear, clear acrylic either boxes or covers. So we use a lot of acrylic and then lockdown happened and we thought, um, do you know what, Let's, we can use this acrylic, instead of just shutting up shop and sort of getting a bit further, we can use this acrylic to protect people. So way before everyone else was doing it, we started doing it. Wow. We started doing it for commercial customers at commercial prices, but we did it for the NHS at not-for-profit prices to try and sort of do our bit, so to speak. And The Guardian um, got wind of it, and they wrote an article online about, I think it was some titled something like the Great British Wartime Effort, and they profiled three companies that were doing their bits through covid one was Brewdog and how they were creating hand sanitizer with their distilling methods. 
The other was Dyson and their efforts to create yes. um, ventilators. And the other one was us and how we were um, using our acrylic to create protection screens. And that, and then and then we're up and running again. So that made us enough money to get through COVID. And then we got back to sort of business as usual again. So it's so back to your question. Like, I, I never feel like it's, you know, we're all sorted and it's all set because you just don't know what tomorrow brings. But you've got to be prepared for that. Yeah. Men- mentally and, and and in the way you run your business as well, psychologically yeah. and, yeah, mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. In every way. Yeah. I guess you've got to have an element of sales acumen and and getting on the phone how much of it is you going out and hunting versus the sort of Sophie Ellis Bexter moment where well you still had to list yourself in the magazine but that sort of that element where they come to you is it about 50 50 now it probably is so what happened so after that Covid thing happened and we started doing the um, screens. Did you have to we, go remember, approach the N- uh, someone at the NHS to sort of make them aware that this is what you could do? No. So how that happened was the Guardian wrote about us. Then I remember putting my young, I was putting my oldest kid to bed one night. It was about six. It was six o'clock, and my phone just started. WhatsApp the WhatsApp ting started going ding 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 ding. I was like, oh no, now what's how <laughs> what's happened? I put my kid to bed, checked it. And they said, oh, we've just seen you on the news. And basically, so what had happened is Alok Sharma, the business secretary of state at the time, in one of the, week, you know, the evening Downing Street yeah. press briefings they did at six o'clock. Yeah. So he um, thanked us. So he thanked Carousel Lights for um, for doing the work we were doing to like for the NHS. And then and then, th- then we got more work through the NHS and through local doctor surgeries, through pharmacists. So basically, it's almost a mix of... So that particularly came through the Guardian um, article that they wrote about us. Um, that then it snowballs. And then BBC Radio Surrey rang us up and said, can we do an interview with Ben about that? So basically, what I'm saying is it builds. So I would say in terms of where business comes from, whether it's us going out to get it versus it coming to us, yeah, it maybe is. Maybe you're right, Joe. It probably is about 50-50. At the start, it, obviously, it was 100% us going to get it versus zero, the people coming back. But if you do a good job, people come. We, we get a lot of repeat customers now. So we're currently, like right right now in the workshop, the job's for, I reckon, 80% of repeat customers. So a big job for Harvey Nichols, big job. For, yeah, a, a lot of repeat customers. But you're right, probably 50-50 on average. Um, it'd be really interesting to know about your workshop as well and, and where that's based and how many people work there and, and the process of moving from, say, your, <laughs> I don't know, when you were making your neon light as a part-time to getting a sort of bit more of a established workshop. How, how was that journey? So we do, we do a real mix of some stuff. So, so going back a step into the breadth of what we offer. So yeah. some people specialise. So some people go, so you get people who just sell like real neon signs. Um, and and real neon signs are the glass, that's glass based. That's glass. glass so yeah. So it's glass with real neon, well, either neon or argon gas in, but sort of real, real gas and real glass. So that's sort of, that's a, that, that is a Purist. neon sign. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. People now call, um, sort of basically like acrylic or LED flex with LEDs in, they call them neons, but actually what they're doing is just replicating neon. So they're obviously not neon signs, they're sort of LED signs. Is there plastic. a difference apart? Is there a, like, can you tell the difference? Is yes, it, you can, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So, but the big thing with neon is because it's a glass tube, it glows like 360 degrees all around it. Um, so it emits right. light from every side. Um, and it almost, it sort of comes to life. Like you can, you can see why artists use it, why sort of people who in their own home, so you sort of turn it on it. Sometimes it'll be on normally, sometimes it'll waver a bit at the end. Like they're, they're really 50% sort of almost sort of chemistry in terms of how the light is coming to life with the sort of ions sort of radiating and 50% like an art form in terms of they sort of, they're all a slightly different colour, even though you've sort of chosen, you know, pink 402, for example, which is hot pink. Yeah, you can't um, guarantee, yeah, it's, it's, there's a slight deviation and that's almost part yeah, of the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because to, to create the colour of a neon, so basically the, the, 
if if you took a clear glass tube and filled it with neon gas and lit it up, it would be red. So that's the color that nat that neon gas glows. To create any other color, you have to use um, fluorescent powders inside the tube, and those powders come from like rocks, basically. So rocks are ground down, different types of rock. So obviously, to create a different powder, it will be from a different rock, from a different place. So each one is slightly different, and that's that's the sort of magic of um, real neon. <laughs> but um, but back to your question about sort of like how we make the stuff and that sort of thing. So we, so some people specialize and they go deep and go like, we are going to just do real neon. Whereas we thought actually what we want to do is have a full product breadth. So say a typical customer coming to us, maybe it's, so Paramount Plus, when they launched their TV channel in the UK, we did lots of their, we call them neon superflex, like their sort of replica neon signs for lots of different shows, but basically for press launch. So for Star Trek, First Lady, Yellowstone. Wow. So, so we did all the sort of signage for that. And what we want is then Paramount to like ring us up the next day and go, right, today we want light boxes or we want fairground lights or we want, you know, something totally different. So instead of, so, so what we don't offer is sort of lights to illuminate a room, sort of ambient lighting, but we wanted to offer the full product range of what we call decorative signage and lighting so not just neon but like we do loads of light boxes for sort of particularly for live music for um bows and wilkins sort of speaker brands that type of thing yeah. so basically in order to offer that full product range like you no, there's no one in the world that can do that in terms of the, the the equipment you need to do that so you need sort of metal forming machines you need to be able to extrude aluminium you need to be able to powder coat aluminium you need a glass blowing workshop and and it just doesn't it just doesn't financially work at scale to have all of that equipment. Yeah. So basically what we do is we decided to offer the full product range and then outsource certain elements. So yeah. extruded aluminium sort of powder coating for light bulbs. So what we tend to do is a lot of the um, final assembly of stuff, particularly particularly for things like Real Neon, where the final assembly is more detailed and more intricate in terms of sort of laying the glass on a... Um, on the actual whatever the final substrate is but that said a lot of this stuff goes straight onto customer walls so for example real real neon and even light boxes like customers often want them put straight onto the wall as opposed to the, okay can you can you send me out like the finished products almost like can you come to me and assemble it in our in our hub so a couple of christmases ago we did all the harvey nichols christmas windows and obviously a lot of that needs to go actually in so we work with sort of like partner install teams to actually sort of install that on site if you see what i mean so it's, it can be quite a complicated process and it involves lots of different sort of third parties and yeah it's quite complex thinking yeah. about it <laughs> yeah and uh, i mean you're a relatively young company and you've had to build up this whole supply chain the workshop element not, not to mention all the customers, which you said B2C and B2B relationships as well, in quite a short space of time. And how do you separate the jobs between your sister and yourself? And, and is there a sort yeah, of wider team? Yeah. So we have Sally who works for us. Um, she's our project director. So yeah. she is our go-to point for all sort of all customer projects. And she's brilliant. So she her background is um, actually sort of design and licensing. So it's great. So if you, so if a customer rings, so more often than not, our customers know what they want creatively, but they don't know what they want sort of technically. Yeah. Um, so they'll ring her up. So she's almost that conduit between the customer ringing her up and say, let's say West Ham Football Club. They rang her up and said, we've got a challenge that our customers, are, um, sorry, not our customers, our players are running down the tunnel at the Olympic Stadium um and we need something to g them up when they're going onto the pitch so we want yeah. our, the anvil and like flashing lights down the side of the tunnel it'll sometimes be on the press when the cameras catch it so sally gets that and she can translate that into okay here's a really good sort of technical solution for that here are the designs blah blah, blah. so that's very much her focus i focus very much on as well as obviously just the day-to-day -day sort of admin of running company, the, the marketing um, side of it. And my sister, Beck, she focuses very much on the operational side of it, so yeah. supplier relations. And actually, back to your, the start of that question, um, one of our biggest challenges, I know we spoke about where we spent our money, and that was on very much product. 
where we spent our time, which is also money we touched on, yeah. was very much a really sort of trustworthy supplier base. So we so we still work with suppliers now. We met when we first started, sort of ten years ago. Yeah. Whereas some, obviously, we sort of we had high hopes for whatever reason, like we were let down or it just mm-hmm. didn't work out. But actually, those trust. I I think when we set up the business, uh, the importance of our suppliers is probably yeah. one of the main things that we overlooked. And things like I don't know exclusive agreements with your suppliers. Do you think how much of that is sort of legal terms and how much of it is just getting a really good relationship with them? I'd say I'd say 99.5% is the latter. Yeah. I wouldn't I would even if we had legal um terms with our suppliers, I would say I, w- I just don't think they'd count for much. Yeah. I'd say so I don't I don't need to see suppliers as in in person, see them in person much. Um anymore because like we know each other we trust each other blah blah but I still often go and it so if, if particularly a, if we've got a big job on and we need some aluminum extruded or some something powder coated or some acrylic sort of you know uh, made I will go and visit them but but it, it actually it's a reason to go and see them it, yeah it's partly me checking the work I trust them so much now that we can check it sort of at a different stage of the process. It's more for me to go and see them, see how they are, talk about business, talk about the economy, yeah. talk about where things are going, and just sort of maintain that face-to-face sort of element of a of a customer supplier relationship, which is which is really important. I mean, every the, the importance of that will vary according to different industries, but for us, it's it's vital. And, it, and you could be in a different industry, and it's it, you know, it's yeah, it's it's a very important part of our chain. Yeah, that's quite an interesting point. And um, like just just back to people liking to work with people and, you know, the marketing job is not just to your clients, but to every stakeholder that in your business, like your suppliers and just keeping them, them on board. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. So have there been, I, I always kind of ask um, sort of, was it all worth it? <laughs> what what What's really hard? That about this life compared to your old life and what's really really rewarding and I know your life has changed as well because you now have children yeah like <laughs> um yeah how is how the whole life changed in terms of yeah, running your business there is quite so I uh, one of the biggest advantages of it that I didn't see coming because as you said I didn't have children when it started was I tend to take my eldest daughter to school each morning and it's literally yeah. sort of popping up the road five minutes, walking in five minutes, coming back. But it's probably my favourite part of the day. So oh. she's six, nearly six. So if we hold like hold hands, we walk in, and she she obviously tells me what's in her head at that moment. And sometimes it can be something quite big and important, as in on the face of it. Sometimes to her it's big and important, but it's something absolutely trivial, something she's noticed on the pavement. And I guess it's sort of like minor meditation in a way, just totally taking my mind off everything. Um and being with her and, and having the business has enabled me to do that because it's my it's my choice. I'm not sort of worrying in my head. Oh, no, is someone ringing me? Am I going to be late for calls? Sort of it's it's totally on my shoulders. Yeah. Um, so that's absolutely sort of an upside of it. A downside of it. I know it's very obvious is but then I don't turn off. Yeah. So on a Sunday night when I'm putting her to bed and I could get a message from someone sort of about something and I just read it and more often than not I didn't need to read it and it could have waited till Monday but I do read it and then that's in my head and it's something about sort of a job that's coming up so you you do never turn off and then there's the obvious stuff about the sort of what we were talking about earlier in terms of you know when Covid happened and you never know what's around the corner I think I think one thing probably I did underestimate is that it can be more lonely than I realised. And I've, I've heard that more since. And I don't mean in terms of, you know, sat at a desk by myself, not surrounded by people, although there is often, there can be an element of that. I mean, more sort of bouncing ideas off people. So when you work in a big corporate organisation, you have the big corporate um, support team. Yeah. So I remember like we were a couple of years into the um, setting the company up. We used Apple Mail as our sort of mail provider and it just it stopped working. I was like, I was like, 
I don't know what to do here. Like, I don't know who to ring. Like, at the BBC, I'd have just rung someone up and <laughs> they'd have fixed it. Or yeah, you're, fixed you're your own IT support team, aren't you? And your finance yeah. director and your legal and your HR. It's really, yeah, that's, yeah. That's exactly it. And I think you can really... And even if you explain that to someone, I think it's really hard to understand how that actually feels until yeah. you're in it. Because those things can be... So, particularly something like IT can be such a huge distraction from actually... Well, I say running your business, that is part of running your business, but from actually sort of making money, let's say, yeah. so in terms of sort of designing products, selling products, selling a service, sort of put, listing a service on your website. Now, suddenly you can spend two or three days trying to work out why your emails are going into client spam folders and, you know, you just can't work it out. And you, it's, yeah, that Has is... that got easier with time because you just got more knowledgeable or it's just, is there always something else coming along, like as you grow and get bigger? Mm, I'd say, <laughs> I'd say... How I, I'd say my attitude to it has got easier because I've sort of worked out that actually it's just part of how it is. Yeah. In terms of the, in terms of how much sort of, how much that consumes of, you know, a sort of a business owner's day, that probably hasn't changed mm. because it's sort of, that is, it's, it's almost a necessary evil of running your own business. Um, and it's sort of almost a matter of acknowledging that those things are there, they won't go it's how it is. The question is how you manage it. And that's yeah. probably the, what's changed with me. Interesting. And, and, and um, okay, I've got two, two other questions. One is, yeah, any moments you've had where you've gone, ah, oh, this is, this is why I love doing what I do, if that's what you love doing. And also yeah. do you, any, any advice you might have for the average Joe uh, that's employed that might have an idea that might be walking past there their own fairground equivalent. <laughs> actually, yeah. sorry, the other thing I thought about was competition because it was kind of, Would you do you think it was luck that you couldn't find what you're looking for? Do you think if you'd found easily that fairground light, this might not have started or do you think something would have started because of your mindset and, and your background? Yeah, uh, and, you and now is there competition that you're sort of conscious of? There's about four questions in there. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Let's start with the competition one and then we'll move on to the competition. Yeah, you're right. At the time, there wasn't loads of competition. There were a couple of companies doing sort of similar-ish things um, with hindsight. But, um, but you're right, there wasn't much competition. And I don't know if that was because there wasn't really a market for this stuff. I don't know, if I'm totally honest. Yeah. Um, so it could be that Norm was flying it because Norm was asking for it. So we started doing it. So people started asking for it. I, I genuinely don't know. Like now you see, let's take the neon things just because they're quite in at the moment. You see them everywhere. Like back then you didn't see them anywhere. Right. Like the only place you saw neon was sort of in Soho, like where it's obviously very famous. It was only done by real glass vendors. Where it's now sort of, it's all over Love Island. It's all over everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which means the demand has gone up significantly, but also obviously like the, for, for that particular product like a far east um supply market has also come into play which so for us everything we sort of offer and make is is done here in the uk yeah um whereas obviously some people are doing cheap imports so it's that's sort of changed but then then we've had to move the company with it and say do what we're not gonna that's the market we're not going to operate in we've made that specific decision to do that because we're sort of a british company and We've won awards. We won the Great British Entrepreneur of the Year Award for being a British company. And, you know, that's a decision we make. But you're right. I, maybe at the time, there definitely wasn't much competition. And it's probably because there wasn't the market. We sort of almost helped create the market, maybe, with hindsight a little bit. I don't know. Um, maybe. I don't know. Like, someone did. And, no, the maybe that's a bit unfair. The market was already there. Maybe we sort of helped grow it. Maybe that's more... It, so there might, it might have been that you just searched and there just wasn't maybe there were companies out there but you just they weren't immediately obvious to you or they weren't the user experience wasn't good and and yeah you just just went well I may as well just start it myself then <laughs> Which, yeah that, that, that is mindset what, piece yeah I think the closest competition to us at the time was probably sort of your high street sign company. So basically, mm -hmm. so a shop facia. So a shop gets renovated in the high street. They sort of ask for their sort of, you know, their projecting sign that sort of blows in the wind type thing mm -hmm. and their shop facia. They were probably the people that you could have approached for this type of product. So they would have had access to all the things to be able to make it. Yeah. Whether they sort of 
could have designed it because they're very functional. They're sort of, okay, send us the details of your shop front. What's your sort of brand color? Send us, your, you know, your logos. We can print it as a vinyl. That, that's almost that sort of process. Um, maybe we sort of almost took those products and sort of put a design slant on them to yeah. create cool sort of signs and lights as opposed to sort of functional I want my shop to stand out on the high street type thing, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. and and the award sounds like like a pivotal moment for saying yes, this has been all work all worth it. But is is would that be right? Or would, have there been any kind of oh, I'm so happy I did this. Um all the hard work's paid off because I get this <laughs> recognition. I think or, it's the yeah. I think it's the big projects that really when you get a, a big Actually, no, big's the wrong word. Like a fu- an exciting project in, that's yeah. when you have the, oh, this is worth it moment. Yeah. yeah. So we've done so many different sort of our clients. We A, a, year, well, a couple of years ago, it was after COVID, um, Coca-Cola basically opened. They've opened a flagship retail store in Covent Garden in London. And they they appointed us to do the, the, the cool signage for that store. So basically what they said... It, do you remember years ago there used to be a big coca-cola sign in piccadilly circus quite an iconic one yeah yeah and they said we want you to they sent us all their photos and drawings of that they said we want you to don't replicate that we want you to use inspiration from that with our current logo to design the sort of the main sort of illuminated signage for their retail store we work with sotheby's in paris wow dog like low it's huge brands yeah Huge brands, yeah. But the Netflix are currently shooting a TV show that we've done, like some of the lighting and signage for, like BBC shows. So it's quite it's quite exciting when, like a, a recent Batman film we did the neon for. So it's quite it's quite exciting. Like they're the moments when you go, wow, this is this is like. So when um, a couple of weekends ago, I was in Birmingham, went to see Elton John at the U, what is now called the Utilita arena but it used to be called the Barclay Card Arena before that it was it was the NIA the National Indoor Arena so I went there sort of not work related but went to a concert um, and I was there with Kate my wife and we sort of we're getting a drink and then I just saw some of the huge um, sort of we call them neon ultra so basically they're the same same type of product we did for Dua Lipa so it looks like neon but it's really robust it's really high quality that you can um, animate it through a lighting desk, so through a DMX controller, which is basically a fancy word of sort of a lighting designer deciding how it flashes. And there were huge sort of super fans lights we did for that arena up on the walls. We probably did those seven years ago, still operating like brand new. And it's and to get that little buzz of going in there and sort yeah. of seeing that firsthand. And to be honest, that was something that I forgot about because it's quite a long time ago. But we have those moments of going or seeing something on telly, or, you know, what it is, something we did, it's or the kids seeing something in the shop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. So that that sort of makes it feel like, okay, yeah, this is quite, I'm actually contributing something here, and sort of, you know, this is this this does feel quite good. Thank you so much, Ben. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to use a real pun. It's been very illuminating to hear your story. <laughs> I'm sure you get loads of uh, lighting puns. In, um, <laughs> but... Um, would you have any sort of parting advice for yeah for um for those sort of either just thinking about starting or all those that are starting but they're having to do everything themselves as you said and they're sort of a bit lonely in the job i i, I would say that I, I i personally would recommend if someone's going to set something up doing something concurrently while you test it um yeah. next to your income um so have your income sort of alongside have your idea get it into the market quickly test it sample it um like if it's to say it's a product that you can sample such as sort of fmcg Mm -hmm. um get it out there get it in front of people but i wouldn't throw everything in until you've done that and you're almost at this stage of i just can't physically do both this new thing that i'm product service i'm thinking of launching is now taking up so much time because either customers are knocking at my door or I'm having to produce new samples, it's going down so well. Um, but I'd resist the urge to go, John, I'm really struggling with my job. I don't really enjoy it. I want to do something different. I would, I, I imagine a lot of entrepreneurs have been there with that feeling, but I'd resist it until you've sort of validated what your product or service idea is. And the other thing I, I this is this is very much a personal thing to me, is, is I would 
have some sort of safety net in whatever guise that takes. So obviously I explained earlier what mine was for me. It was sort of my background mm -hmm. in uh, marketing in the corporate world, sort of a lot of contacts in that industry, but it could be something different um, for, something, for someone else, depending on what their background is. But just to have sort of a plan B. And, and the reason I say that isn't because people then go into it thinking, um, almost like I don't need to give it my all because I've got a backup plan. I genuinely think if you're going into it for the right reason to make your business a success, it won't affect your motivation. It won't affect your desire to make it to make it work at all costs type thing. But I think it may help you just sleep a bit better at night when you have the days when the phone doesn't ring and things go wrong and sort of your life changes. It just may, it just may take the stress off a bit and make your life just sort of a little bit easier. Oh, I think that's that's great advice. And I think that's the thing about doing this podcast is that it's not that kind of throw it all in. You know, I, I set my business up at 20 and, you know, it is about measured steps. And, and a lot of uh, the interviews so far have been that exact pattern where they've got the experience and they're also testing and trialing first. It's a really, really good advice. Um, thank you so much, Ben. It's been really, really interesting to hear your story. And what do you think about the future then? Do you think about just doing more of the same and enjoying it and perhaps sort of doing more of what you enjoy in the business? And Well, that, I mean, that's actually a really interesting question. We So I'm almost in the future now. And what I mean <laughs> by that is when we went in, when we sort of set it up and we've been going for a few years, we probably thought we'd call it a day. Or we never, we never said let's do this for ten years. We thought <laughs> let's do it, then maybe do something different because I've been used to moving around. Yeah. So I'm actually now in the stage that I didn't think I'd be in, which is <laughs> I've been running it for ten years, um, which makes me very hesitant to like my obviously future predicting isn't very accurate. But <laughs> as long as I enjoy it, I'll keep doing it, and as long as there's something different, I'll keep doing it. As long as I feel there's somewhere I can take it, I'll keep doing it, and as long as I enjoy working with customers and suppliers, I'll keep doing it. But to be totally frank, if, that, if any of that changes, then I won't. So I don't, I don't want to just sort of plough on and you know, start to become unhappy because it's sort of grinding me down. I would, I would do something else. Um, so in answer to your question, what's the future hold? I have no, I have no idea. But <laughs> I guess that's sort of how I've lived my life so far and I find it quite exciting. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for asking me on.